Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Cosman Montanu. He's an associate professor at the University of Waterloo and a shale research chair in the technology for healthy aging. In today's world, our devices are inseparable from us. With time, technology only gets smaller, more affordable, and more integrated into our lives. But what will happen in the future when the barriers between our physical and digital worlds are removed entirely? Expect to learn what happened when an eating disorder helpline replaced their human staff with ChatGPT, why creating a good voice assistant is really hard, where Cosm believes technology is headed, if Cosm believes the Apple Vision Pro will move the needle in regards to virtual reality adoption, why technologies are not adapting to a rapidly aging global population, and much more. But before we get started, you may be watching but not subscribed, and that means you may miss future episodes. So if you're watching on YouTube, click the red subscribe button below, or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, go to the podcast homepage and click the plus follow button to not miss the next episode. It helps me and the show, and it helps you to not miss future episodes. I thank you. But now, ladies and gentlemen, Cosman Montanu. super artificial maybe that that voice assistant needs some work he can tell me <laughs> so we're here to talk all things technology human computer interfaces how we interact with technology what the future that looks like so maybe as just a place to start how would you describe a human computer interface so it's it's actually more complicated and more simple than it sounds um because this has something that has changed over time um and we still haven't fully agree on what a human computer interface is. And the problem is the word computer in there. Um, typically, we think of human computer interface as anything that allows humans to uh, interact with uh, or control, historically speaking, more control, um, a computing device. Um, and, and historically, this was based in the early days of, of computing technology, whereas either even before personal computers were we had to find ways to better interact with these machineries. Um, they were primarily sort of very rigid, used for very sort of rigid task, engineering, finance, whatever, when it started. Uh, but also things that were computing devices that were not necessarily consumer-facing, um, thinking industrial, power plant control units, <laughs> and, and all of that. So uh, the, the days where things became more computerized. Um, so that's how we started. Um, so anything that defines the, this interface, this this joining of humans and machines in, in achieving a certain task was an interface. And I think this definition has been changing quite a lot because what what is a computer? Um, is it a phone? It's it's definitely a computer. Um, so, but we don't call it human phone interface. We're still, in, in from from a tech design perspective, it's still a human computer interface. Um, but there's more to that uh, because uh, for people of a certain age like myself, um, it's something I challenge the students, for example, when I teach, I ask them to show me the computers they have with them, like things that have a computer chip. And, and it's interesting because they take their phone out. Some of them would pull like an Apple Watch. Um, very few pull out their 
credit card or the student card um, that has a chip inside. All student cards have a chip inside uh, where you store your meal plan and whatever. And, and those chips are more complex than when I got into computing. Um, and nobody thinks about that as a computer. Uh, but we call those things that have those chip in, we call computers a long time ago. Um, and that's an interaction. You don't interface with it because you don't type on it, you don't touch it, except to hand it over for a payment. But that's a computer. Um, and we interact with it. And I think this field of human-computer interaction is looking at those things, but we often don't think. When we think of interface, we think of a desktop, a phone, maybe now voice assistants, virtual reality. But we don't think about all the other little things that are around us all the time. Um, the payment terminal, when you buy your coffee, and all of that, they're all computers. So all of this is human-computer interaction. How do we build and design something that allows us to do something? Not necessarily control it, because you don't control it when you pay uh, for your coffee, um, but it is an interface. You engage in a process that's supported by, by that technology. Awesome. So all I think of that is human-computer inter interaction research and design. Gotcha. Moving forward, I think that we'll probably just shorten that just to HCI, just for folks who are yes, of aware. Of it's, a, it's, a bit, it's a bit of a mouthful for it is a very in, mouthful. in the morning. <laughs> it's a very mouthful. So just to circle back, um, you said that there's disagreement in how people are defining HCIs. And is that just because of that that vast scope? That's what I'm assuming. And why is there no standard or agreement? It is because of the vast scope. Um, and it also, it's there are two reasons. One is the scope. The other one is what is the focus? Because there's three letters, right? So which of these three letters we're focusing on? Is the H, is it the C, or is it the, is the, is the I? Um, and some people do a little bit of, of all. Um, and and there's, a, there's several paradigms in this research space that came um, in terms of sort of historical. And, and it started as a, as a human ergonomics research field in a way. Um, how do we make these things better so we don't click on the wrong button and things explode or uh, something goes wrong? And, it's not that that's done. Um, like plenty of examples, even these days, about banks messing up, you know, half a billion dollar because of software that's badly designed, and you know, some operator somewhere click on the wrong thing, and everything um, went went bad. Um, but also because because nowadays we're we're placing this in a broader context. This is no longer about the H, the C, and the Y. Um, it's also about the society, the environment, and where these things are placed and what does it mean um, for all of that and what does it mean for this complex. I mentioned the credit card, and that's a great example in many ways because not everyone has a credit card. Not everyone can have a credit card. Um, what does it mean in this context where you walk into a store and the store only takes Apple Pay and maybe some credit card? And I've seen stories that almost kind of move towards just um, even like credit cardless transactions that involve just these digital payment systems. So what does that mean for us as a society? So the field of HCI has moved to start thinking about these things now, more than just how to make, how to put the right button in the right place so we don't make an error when we use an interface. How to avoid those half a billion dollar errors. That's right. Yeah, so we're moving to that from like how to do less damage as a society. Right. And this may seem like a very trivial question, and I'm sure for you it is, but perhaps for someone who's listening who is less involved in the in the tech scene, they would not um, maybe think about this, but why are HCIs so important? And to, to, to piggyback on that, why are they so interesting 
to you. You spent your career studying and learning about them and designing them. What about them is so captivating for you? So twofold, why is it important? Why is it captivating? Um, well, I think there's a good overlap between why they're important and why I'm interested in them. Um, but I think they've been important since we started thinking about that. And as I said, we initially we look at it from a almost from a safety perspective, from a productivity perspective. Um, we introduce something like this. We want to make sure that it helps people. It doesn't make it worse. So if we move from a purely, say, analog system that controls a power plant um, to a more digital system, you want to make sure that everything that a human operator does would not lead to an error. Um, if you look at what we call safety-critical interaction, aviation, healthcare, um, aviation has improved significantly because of the research we've done in the interfaces. Surprisingly, airplane cockpit are less uh, sort of affected by the radical transformations. I'll be more conservative industry for good reasons, but there were always improvements, but they're on the ergonomic side of things. Uh, ergonomic doesn't mean just in the placement of buttons, but how information is displayed so we can process it quickly. Understanding in how many seconds do we process some text, some data, um, that will help us reach a decision quickly as human operators. Um, so we move from that. So that's part of the importance. Um, there's an economic cost attached to this, not just a safety cost. Um, I mentioned the banks, uh, but even for companies, we see that in terms of products. If your product is not designed to be used properly by humans, they will abandon it and move to a different product. Um, if we're talking about digital interfaces, software, computers, laptops, your thermostat, um, everything that involves some sort of a digital interface. If it's not designed properly, you, you'll move to something else. Um, so that's one other component of this, uh, of this equation. Um, but then nowadays, as I mentioned, we're starting to think more about making people's lives better. So we're going past, this is going to be a disaster, how to not how to not get us into that versus how to improve people's life. Um, everything from um, entertainment to keeping us connected to others. It's how we design these interfaces um, is, is important. And that's part of the reason I'm interested in this space. Um, and I'm, I'm very much interested in the sort of purely human component of it. How do we help connect people? How do we help enrich their lives? And um, interfaces are integral to that. It's not the only thing. There's a lot of other things that are important. Technology in itself um, has to has to be there, has to help us. But the interface part of it is it's the most exciting. It's in a way I draw the parallel with a car. Um, even if cars are soon going to become an outdated metaphor, but. Um, it's the first thing you notice when you sit down in a car is, is the steering wheel, like how comfortable the seats are. Um, you know, there's a few people who are obsessed. And first thing when they look at the car, they, you know, open the, you know, open the hood and look inside of the engine. But that's a, that's a very niche sort of, you know, most people sit down and it's like, oh, I like this car. Um, so that's the interface. That's why we like to get things that help us because that's, that's the first thing we, we run across is that interface part. Yeah, it's the it's that I/O, so that that input output, how you interact with the device is so critical. Um, it's it's the most tactile thing, right? So if it doesn't jive and work with you, then clearly there's going to be some friction there. So when I think about human computer interfaces (HCIs), now I'm going back on my promise of shortening that. Um, <clears throat> when I think about HCIs, 
I think about the radical changes from analog systems to, to digital systems, from a command line to a 2D GUI, which is still mostly what people use, GUI, graphical user interface. Um, so in, in your eyes, as an expert, <laughs> what are some of the most interesting examples of HCI transitions from the past decade, perhaps? Uh, that's obviously not a hard deadline. Uh, you can shift that however you'd like. Uh, what, what has been the most impactful in your eyes and, and, and why has that been the case? Mm. So this is where I'm going to start maybe getting a bit controversial. <laughs> so I don't think there's any single pit. Um, to be honest, um, and um, despite me being an engineer and me working in this space, both as a designer and as a social scientist of sorts, I see this as a whole than, than just one piece. Um, where I'm excited is, is the whole span. Um, and I'm looking back 40 years ago um, when when I personally started kind of getting interested in computing technology, uh, but even before that. And for me, it's what's fascinating. It's the evolution and it's what humans is. The, again, it's the H part of it, um, not the C part, <laughs> not the I part. Um, the I part is a tool. <laughs> C is sort of also a tool. The age, the human is the one that's interesting. And for me, what, what I'm excited about is how it allowed us to connect with each other and improve our lives. Um, and again, this will come with warnings about also the downsides. Um, but this for me, it's it is the most interesting kind of thing that I've seen. And, and that one, it's almost like, I don't care about the technology anymore. I don't care. Um, it's the fact that I can do these things. Uh, and it's simple. Sometimes it's the simple things that I reflect on. Um, writing letters. <laughs> when I was young, that was it. It's like, it sounds so trivial, like the email, right? It's like, it's just the fact that I would write letter to my cousin. <laughs> that was uh, long distance phones were expensive. So... Stay in touch means write a letter. And now it's not just email. Right? It's just, you know, we have a million choices for, we're doing it right now. We're on this digital platform and we talk to each other. Um, so these are the exciting things. Um, and it's not this particular technology. It's the fact that we can do all of these things. Um, and we expect to do all of these things. Um, it's it's this almost this expectation. It's people are upset where you're on an airplane and you connect to the Wi-Fi and it doesn't work as fast. Right? And it's almost like we expect it now. Um, and I'm thinking maybe three years from now, um, we're expecting it to be like super high speed. <laughs> um, so it's almost regardless of the technology. It's the fact that our society has fundamentally changed um, because of all of this, all of these things that are around us, not just one single piece. Very curious as to how many people are boycotted Delta or South by or something because they don't offer Wi-Fi on all their flights. <laughs> We're going to probably see that. Um, it's it's an interesting time, right? And it's that's just one example. And again, it's I like to I like to be independent of the specific technology when I think about these things. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, that that perspective of change with 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 time that to me is the most fascinating because if you look over the last twenty years, let's say our world is dramatically different from what it was in the early 2000s that's just a fact like you if you if you look around if you if you're waiting in a starbucks line 
you are very rarely going to be conversing with people in front or behind you, which may be a little bit unfortunate, but you're so plugged in and dialed in to people who are within your social sphere that it can maybe give the illusion of connection, which I'm sure dot, 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 we'll get to later. Uh, But in the meantime, I want to kind of pivot and focus on the technologies for now. Uh, maybe not the most interesting part in, in your eyes, Cosmo, but we will get to the to the people. I'm I I promise you that. In today's world, what are some of the most interesting or engaging HCIs that you see emerging? So top of mind, I think of is different ways to interact with computers and our devices rather than, you know, these 2D GUIs again, but perhaps expanding that to other senses, et cetera, other immersive environments. But I will leave it up to you to let me know all the super secret technologies in the pipes. So there's several uh, where to focus on that. Um, but from my own perspective, because this is where I work in, would definitely be voice interfaces and virtual reality, because those are the two most active things I'm I'm studying these days. And I've been studying voice interfaces for getting close to 30 years now. Um, and um, that's why I also wouldn't call it, <laughs> it's interesting, I wouldn't call it up, up and coming uh, because it's up and coming for 60 years. <laughs> um, there's a separate discussion that I'm going to maybe touch upon in, in terms of how these things come and go and this sort of low oscillations of excitement until something kind of bursts and then it dies, <laughs> kind of dies down again. Um, but uh, but for me, that's one of the most interesting one uh, because it exploded commercially um, in a way that very few people predicted it from a commercial. I mean, I'm just, I'm highlighting the word commercially. Because from a- this being technologies like Amazon Alexa, Google Home, all these home kits. And they started with Siri, right? Uh, right. To, you know, uh, like a lot of Apple things. Um, it started with taking something that's been around for 40 years and just making it, let's say, commercially viable. It's, you know, we're not talking about profit, but it's viable. Um, and, um, so for me, that's why it's in a way exciting, um, because also it raises a lot of problems, um, including the fact that, to be honest, the technology was never ready for this kind of use. Um, it's starting to be ready, but um, we sort of opened the can of worms a little bit too early. You know? <laughs> what do you mean by that? Why was it not ready? Um, for example, when Apple purchased the the, the, the tech startup that led to, to Siri, um, it it was designed to do something a bit different than what Apple did with Siri. Um, it was a research project, um, and a lot of people in in the research space were kind of a bit shaking their heads. <laughs> and it led to being commercially prevalent. Like almost these days, you can't even sell a product unless it has voice interface in it. Um, but compared to what we were doing, we were studying, we were trying to achieve, it was very limited. Um, and we still see the same. Uh, and I wasn't surprised when Amazon started sort of pulling back on on all the development on on Alexa because they are very very limited in terms of capability. It's stuff that we've long established as done or maybe not even interesting in the research space like twenty five years ago. <laughs> um, and um, and it, it's. And exciting technology is a very complex technology. It's a very difficult technology to do it right, both on the technology side, but also on the interface side. Um, and because of all that, we're basically seeing a very limited use of it today. 
Right. It's it seems like it's very transactional. Amazon Alexa is pretty much just good for buying stuff on Amazon. <laughs> yeah. We call them conversational, but each of them are. You're right. The word is transactional. Um, and and the metaphor I'm using for this, there's there's two metaphors depending on how you use it for. Is the vending machine? <laughs> so you mentioned like the old fashioned, like you ask for something and you get something from it. And 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 it's the fortune teller. <laughs> metaphor um the the one that kind of gives you something for entertainment like tell me a joke um or or stuff like that and and it seems when you think about it you have this huge computing power that's behind all of this like literally it's 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 amazing it is one of the most computing intensive forms of interaction for people who, again who are not really aware of what goes behind it can you maybe just explain a little bit about what's going on because it is quite profound um, it's the c- complexity of processing voice and acting on someone's intent um, expressed by voice or understanding what we said requires um, computational power. That's one of it's one of the hardest computational um, tasks. Um, you need to process the acoustics of it, which is an engineering problem. Um, you need uh, a lot of this kind of artificial intelligence to process intent to understand the language, to extract uh, meaning from it. Um, and we've improved a lot um, on the performance of these technologies because companies like Google and Apple and Microsoft have extremely large servers that can handle all of this. Um, but um, even with that, it still doesn't work very well. Um, and if you think about it, the amount of power, the computing power that's needed to process just what one person says when ask Alexa for a joke, um, it's 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 staggering, um, and um, it, it is a very 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 complex time. So, yeah. some people never know the amount of complexity that goes into Amazon Alexa telling them a really bad joke, which is kind of hilarious. It's it's shocking because it is way more complex than you know, rendering the graphics in a computer game. Um, it is way more complex than anything we're imagining. Um, and uh, and that's why it doesn't work so well. That's why it's so limiting. Uh, but we're excited about it because it's it's something we use every day. It's voice is the number one form of interactions that human have. It's the most comfortable, it's the most natural for most people, uh, bearing accessibility. Um, and that's why we want it. And, and it's also, that's why we've been thinking so much about it. And this is this is another dimension here. It's the fact that this HCI thing, it's it's hard to take it out of the context. And one of the contexts is what we dreamed about for 100 years. Right? And I'm talking about, say, sci-fi and everything else. And this is what we've been dreaming. Every time we've imagined like some sort of artificial interaction, he had an artificial voice. You know, you know, bad sci-fi movies from the 50s, we never envisioned like a keyboard or touch screen. Well, we did a little bit, but it was always a robot that had a voice, a badly artificial voice. But that's how we always envision these things. Um, and um, so we're, we're, we want this, but we're not we are not ready for it. And it is not fully ready for us. So you had mentioned that 25 years ago was kind of where the researchers were at versus what these large companies are doing now with voice technology, voice interfaces. Could you maybe dive a little bit deeper into that? What are they missing? Why are they so far in the past? 
compared to researchers? Well, part of it is because when it comes to voice interfaces, there's one significant technological challenge, and that is the variability of errors that no other interface has. So when I type on my keyboard, if we were to think about the keyboard, or if I use the mouse, and the mouse has been one of the oldest human-computer interfaces around, and most people can use it um, with minimal training. It requires some training. Um, we don't think about it, but it requires some training. When you think about that, um, we know the errors. We know things. We have, uh, for example, a fundamental laws of what we call a physics. It's called Fitts law in interaction. And it tells us that the accuracy of clicking with a mouse on an icon on your desktop is a matter of how far your mouse is from that icon and how big the icon is. It's such an intuitive thing, right? And, and it's almost like, well, we kind of know how to handle all of these things. Um, but with voice, it's so unpredictable. Voice is unpredictable. Someone's accent, someone's age, all of this affecting how an age, not just from a physiological perspective, from a mental perspective, the way I address a machine is different than someone that's 30 years younger than me. Um, and all of that affects how, how, this, how we interact with this. And when, when we interact with this in this unpredictable way, the errors getting higher. Uh, and then when it goes sideways, it goes sideways really bad. Um, so, um, and it won't, it won't understand us, it will give us the wrong thing. Um, so it's that unpredictability that's that's been the source of all these problems. And, and you have to constrain it. Um, you know, play me this, you know, play a song, you know, what's the weather? Um, things like that are very simple tasks that where the predictability is a bit more controllable. Interesting. So where where does this all go? So my my gut reaction is that something along the lines of these large companies developing the input side of things has probably helped nudge research along. It's kind of a solved problem in a way, and maybe that's a controversial statement as well. Um, companies like OpenAI have, have developed APIs called I think it's called Whisper, which is phenomenally good at detecting voice transcribing it. I think that you, I saw a demo where somebody had recorded an audio sample, run it back through their computer and recorded it four times over before it dropped any words. And they had a loud air conditioner in the background. It's it's very, very sophisticated. With these tools in place where that kind of top of the funnel is solved, where where would you hope that this would lead in the future? And who stands to benefit the most from that advancement? So... I wouldn't call this solved. I think we solve some things. Um, so we solve <clears throat> some of the variability that comes from the acoustic environment, um, but we didn't solve the variability that comes with the language environment. And I'm not talking about different languages. I'm talking about accents. I'm talking about the way people speak. I'm talking about unpredictable things they may say. So that one we haven't fully solved. We're getting there, but we haven't fully solved. We solve a lot of the acoustic issues. When I started in this field, you had to be in a quiet room with a wired microphone close to your mouth, um, and dictate things clearly and neatly, um, and uh, and it's it's something that we we are not past that, but we haven't solved this issue of talking to machines in a freeform way that captures my accent, my culture, my way of speaking, um, and a lot of other things that are actually quite more interesting <laughs> that than simply. Um, Say you know asking you mentioned this word transactional I like that quite a lot that's that that go that takes us past the transactional interaction that we have 
we just ask something and we get it back. Um, and that's needed. I'm not saying it's not needed. Um, you know, but it's is this the only thing we can do? And the answer is no, it should not be the only thing we can do. Um, and we've been imagining doing this because that's how we've been primed. You know, we did we did a research study a few years ago comparing Alexa with, with Star Trek computer <laughs> from the next generation. Um and looking at all the conversations in, in, in Star Trek and it was very transactional. Um, but even then, um, there were there were a few things that were more interesting than what we that we're doing today. Um, but we're not imagining things that are not that transactional. Even what I see today is, for example, like healthcare chatbots. It's still based on on almost the same kind of concept, same goal satis. We call this goal satisfaction in 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 conversational systems and getting us to a certain goal. And, you know, grabbing a drink with your buddies and talking about the game last night, you know, you cannot do that with a machine. You cannot do that. Um, things like chat GPT give you partly the illusion of being possible. And there's there's a few things like Replica. There was an interesting kind of story around that as a, as a company and how they, they try to have some chatbots around that. Um, but it's very, it's very limiting. We're not, we're not quite there yet. That's why we're... And we've been talking about this for a long time. I just recently read a news article. It, there was a, I believe it was a nonprofit that was designed to be an outlet for people who have eating disorders to talk to someone who's a professional, a trained professional, to talk them down from their mental spiral, whatever. Great service. The workers unionized. Yes. <laughs> and the director, the owner, what... I don't know who would be the shot caller here, decided that it would be better off or the technology is there where they could remove the staff and replace them with yep. a chat GPT powered chatbot. I believe it was called like Tessa or something like, something like that. And people would write in and talk about these distressing situations that they would have with thoughts of body dysmorphia, things like that, talking about how they don't like their body, that they want to lose weight, et cetera. And the chatbot would respond not with um, an empathetic response, like, hey, everyone has these thoughts, it's it's okay, things along those lines. It was very logical. So it wasn't, no, you're fine as, as you are. It was, if you want to lose weight, maintain about a 500 to a 1,000 uh, caloric deficit uh, yeah. each day, monitor your weight, and track progress, which... As somebody who's pretty deep in the fitness community, that is how you lose weight. That's true. But you probably don't want to tell that to somebody who has a history of struggling with eating disorders. So the point is that these technologies are, that these technologies are getting quite remarkably powerful. You can ask chat GPT, this generative AI model, almost anything in the world, and it can basically look at all of the written history on the internet and pull what you're looking for out of it. But that doesn't mean that it's this God, this 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 God technology that everyone should be using. It misses the mark in terms of logical versus empathetic reasoning, and I think that is a big part of of this is this partnership with these large AI models and then voice assistants. There, there's some kind of disconnect that we have not bridged yet. Uh, I don't know if there's anything that you are aware of of people working on this problem. 
Uh, when I think about this synergy, this takes me to almost a movie called Her. And I am yeah. I would hope that you would have seen that based on your field. It is a wonderful movie, Walking uh, Phoenix, Scarlett Johansson, uh, basically about this guy who falls in love with an AI chatbot. Lots of connotations about relationships, humanity, technology, et cetera. Um, but yes, I don't know if you are aware of anyone who's working on this problem and if there's any strides that are being made. There's a lot of people working on this problem. And and. Interestingly, and also unfortunately, it's very few people work on this problem from an engineering perspective, which they should. So the, the problems here are, are a bit kind of complicated. So starting, let's start with the movie part, right? And it's not necessarily picking on that movie, because this is a, a trope that comes in the movie. When we think of AI, we think of several things, and all of them are, I would say, almost the wrong way to think about this thing, right? We think about, I don't know, robots that want to kill us. Autonomously, uh, we think about technologies that pretend to be human and dupe us into, you know, romantic entanglements and other, you know, other things. Um, and in a way, that's those are the wrong ways to think about when we think about the downsides of this technology. Um, and when you mention this example, it's 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 everyone's been buzzing about this uh, this issue with a um, eating disorder chatbot. It's not that the technology doesn't work conceptually. It's that people who put it in a place don't think about it. Um, simple like that. And that, that's a very long pipeline. And, and we've been thinking about this in the, in the sort of critical technology space for a long time. Um, and it's something called algorithmic discrimination, algorithmic bias. And it's something that we now know, we now define. It's the fact that when we train, so everything that we use in artificial intelligence, and that includes voice interaction, conversational, uh, requires data to train. And, and training from a statistical perspective means something along the line of, I've seen this a lot of times, and now I'm confident that if I see something that's similar to this, it would be the same thing. Right? It's a classification problem. So which means the algorithm works, but if you feed it the wrong data, it will do what it was trained to do. Um, and uh, it's like it's like sort of dog training. <laughs> you keep throwing the ball, the dog's gonna go get it. And you know, then everything that's spherical and bounces would be a ball. So um, I think that's a very interesting point because what what we've done in the in, in the recent few years with these large GPT models is we've taken the culmination of everything on the internet. But that isn't how everyone around the world communicates. So even I was just listening to a podcast yesterday or a few days ago where they were having a discussion about, I believe it was communication, um, which is very, very broad, but teaching people to be better listeners than better speakers. And active listening is a very important role in any kind of communication. But one person raised the point and she said, I'm from the South. In the South, we don't ask we don't continually ask questions to get closer to the root of what's going on. We show that we're actively listening by sharing other stories about ourselves that we've gone through to indicate that we know how you feel, which is very interesting. That's not really how I communicate. I, I'm, I'm more direct, but a lot of people aren't. So how are you going to create these, these chatbots that are these AI, these conversational AI that are going to work for everyone on one massive amalgamation of data set. I don't think that you can. You, you could, you could, but the issue is 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 twofold there. One is is the fact that 
we are lazy as as developers. Literally, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm not gonna pull punches here. We're lazy. We just grab whatever's easy for us. And you mentioned the internet, right? And and we're just gonna grab what's easy. And what's easy is what's there, right? Without thinking what we put in. Um, so it's not like a intentionally bad sort of we're we're purposefully you know making this bad we're just grabbing it's like hey it's some i found some large data here that i can mimic right in my in, in training these models that i use in my artificial intelligence system um we are thinking that other people may not use it this way um i mean to go back to the to the fitness chatbot um the sort of the 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 sort of weight loss chatbot it's going that way <laughs> um, and you mentioned fitness right the advice from fitness and if you think about this like how much on the internet is is fitness blogs in a lot of them are bad <laughs> you know uh, a lot of them are really really bad but you pull all of that in without you know in a, without a critical view of that you're going to get 99 percent bad fitness blogs 0.5 percent or 0.8 percent good fitness blogs and then maybe 0.1% you're going to get some actually medical information about yes, but, but even disorders. even on that point perhaps yeah. this chatbot I, I don't think it was trained on medical data if it was trained on just data from medical journals it may reach the same conclusion like that is how you logically lose weight you need to be in a caloric deficit but that does not again mean that it's suitable to be a eating disorder hotline chatbot because it wasn't trained on medical data that's specific to eating disorders. Correct. Um, and so this is this is this is the problem. So it's it's the fact that we train on bad data, and then as I said, the second problem is that people who are behind some of these technologies involves the entire ecosystem. It's not just I'm not just naming like, it's like one person, right? It's that we often make the mistake of not double checking ourselves. It's like when I do this, is it the right thing to do? Um, and we don't think about it. It's like, hey, I found some data. I want to build this thing. Let's let's put it together. And we kind of have the technology to do it. And we know the mechanism. We have the math behind it. We have everything. But we're not thinking about what happens if I put it together. And there's a million examples. And, and I mean, I, I use a video quite a lot in my teaching about this. It's it's absolutely hilarious. And it's um it's the title of it more or less is like Scottish lady um you know oh Amazon Alexa hates Scottish uh, right and it's <laughs> this lady that tries to get a song play on Alexa while she's cooking and she's saying it like five different times and it's it's hilarious in a way and then she switches her accents to a forced English accent and then Alexa gets it um um and uh, it just shows that you we don't think about this we're we're treating people as all the same. And you mentioned your example with sort of different ways of, of having an active listening conversation. And um, we don't capture that because we're lazy. <laughs> they would require us to think differently how we package this technology, but also how we train how we train the model. So it's it's what's under the hood um, is the engine that's not bad. It's, it's you know, you need a family van and, and you can't just like slap, a, you know, <laughs> A race car engine in there um, be fun, but um, it's not really like how it kind of works. But also, we're not thinking about the front end, right? The the wheel, right? It's 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 again. If you sell a family van, you can have like a like a like a rectangular like steering wheel with like gear shift buttons <laughs> in racing. Um, the same thing. But if if it's why we don't let like professional, you know you know, race car designers design a family van because that's how we design every family van. Um, this is where we are, right? It's, it's, 
we don't think about the people we design this for. And what does it mean to design for, for people? Um, if we were to solve this problem, hypothetically, would this look like refining the data set or would this be train it on all the data, give it everything, and then perhaps there's some tweaking modifications that you can do to the weighting of this AI net to focus on a certain a accent. It can maybe detect what kind of accent that, that you have and then kind of tune it in a predefined way. I'm I'm not sure what, the, what this looks like. I'm a little far removed from this kind of technology. There's different ways to do it. And some are possible, some are not possible yet, right? Um, when it comes to accents, it's it's possible. And we've, we've come a long way. And um, I mean, 25 years ago, I was at a conference where people were asking someone presenting that was from Microsoft. Um, and I forgot what country that person was. Um, and, and so like, why is, why is everything you're doing not available in my language? And the answer was, um, we're not interested in a small market language. Now, Microsoft is available in all of these languages that we have this day. Not all of them, but in way more, and including that language. Um, and and it's it's a great example because we went past that notion of, well, I only care about this group of people. I only care about native English speakers from the northeast of U.S., which literally was what every voice assistant is trained on. Uh, now we're getting better. Um, so we're starting to realize this. Um, we're also starting to develop methods to develop to, to train these models. Um, it's not always perfect because it's true in some cases you don't have enough data, so you have to find these adaptations. But in other cases, you can just train directly on the on the data that you have for that particular group. In some cases, we're lazy. We're not collecting the right data. We're not looking at the right data. Um, just going back to the space where I'm working on, like older adults. Right? We don't collect data about how older adults would use voice assistance, so we can train better voice assistants for older adults. Um, so it's it's a mix of everything. Um, this is why in, in the technology design space, there's a few new paradigms we're using that basically are not about the technology, but about how we approach the process. So it's less of a, the actual tweaks that we need to do, because those are in a way solvable to a certain extent, but it's how we how we go about in the first place. So there's there's few things, several frameworks we call it. For example, one of the frameworks is called digital design marginalization. And it's this simple thing that says, are, have you thought about the damage you're gonna do to groups of people that you're not including in your in in your initial approach of thinking about this technology? Um, we have frameworks such as design justice. Like, are you including people from every community that you're gonna affect in your design process? So someone can say, hey, you haven't thought about this accent. Hey, you haven't thought about how people in this part of the world engage exactly your example. I like it quite a lot where you said, this, isn't, this is not active listening for us. Can you change the design? Can you change the flow of how this conversation is gonna go? Um, and it's just asking that question, like, have you thought about this? And often the answer is, no, we haven't thought about this. Um, but the technology is there. We could put it in if we think about it. Seems like it's a very hard problem the deeper you, you, you get into it. Um, I'm, I'm curious. We, we've been talking about generative AI a little bit with chat GPT and these large language models. How much synergy is there with these models and voice assistants? Not much yet, um, but technically it's very possible to have it. 
And, and is this something that you believe may unlock more of a conversational type of interface? I know a lot of the GPT stuff can, again, feel very, it's very transactional. Like if, if you were to prompt it with certain things, it'll give you a response that is not very fluid. It'll, it'll directly, like it's, it's almost like writing a resume. If you're trying to tailor it to a job application is if they say that they're looking for this skill, you might put it in your resume verbatim. I have the skill. So it's going through, it's making sure that it hits every single part of your prompt and gives you a response, which is not quite how humans speak. It's not. And, and that's why I think there's a lot of hype about this. And the models are very interesting because yes, they will unlock a lot of things, but I think we may be hyping it a bit too much in terms of both what we can do and what we're scared of. Um, and um, it's 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 a tool for me. It's like it's almost like getting excited about spell check. <laughs> <laughs> like yes, it's an interesting problem, but um, it's not as ra- it's maybe, maybe I've been around for too long and I've seen too many things. It's not as radical. It's it's in a, it's a good incremental step to what we had. So yes, it will unlock a few things. It will make may, it will lead to conversation flowing a bit more naturally. But again, it's the question is like. For who? Yeah, it's like it's it. It was the person that's gonna feel natural about it, um, and in what context? Um, and again, it comes back to how we use them. Um, yes, it will help. It will help make of make some of these things. We could even ten years ago, we could do a lot of that. It would take just development effort, um, and it would take a lot of tweaking of technology. Now it's a bit easier to get there. Um, so what it helps it's it makes the cycle of development faster and easier and, and the product better without as much effort as we would have to spend 10 years ago. Um, so the capabilities are there indeed. Uh, but the question is like, are we going to use them in the right way? Right. So I guess a bit of a left turn, and I want to come back to voice assistants later when we talk about who can benefit from them. But before we began on voice assistance, you had mentioned that you worked that you've been working a lot with VR and AR as well. Now, for again, people who are tapped into the tech world, uh, they may have noticed that a a quite large fruit company just announced that they are entering the VR AR space that with the Apple Vision Pro. So this is a super high-end headset that's designed to merge your current reality with the digital reality. You can what you can experience what's called augmented reality or spatial computing, where your device can interact with the real world and display things and augment it. Uh, and with a turn of a dial, you can enter into this virtual world where you're kind of isolated and can do your own thing. With that being said, what have you kind of been studying or researching in the realm of virtual reality? Are you excited for a company like Apple to enter the space? Because I, I mean, I suppose this kind of harkens back to what we were talking about with the voice assistants, where the technology is maybe being pushed out there a little bit too early, or it's using some things that are a little bit of an old news kind of um, paradigm, if you will, from from the research realm. Where do you fall on this? Well, yeah, it's a bit, ironically, it's a bit simpler, right? um, because it's less of a challenge as it is with voice around making sure that this doesn't go bad. With voice technology, just to draw a parallel, right? it's, the issue is this, this humongous complexity of errors and getting it right for people. With VR, it's a more of a 
static thing. It's it is what it is, right? It's like a you know, in a way, it's actually not in a way. It's just a computer monitor, right? Um, it's just tiny, and it's two of them, and they are, you know, sort of something that looks like a ski goggle um, that you look very closely at. But but literally, it's the same technology as a computer monitor, right? Um, ultimately, um, so it's less um, problematic from from this perspective of you know users cannot use it. Obviously, there's restrictions, there's eyesight issues, there's um, balance issues. So there's physiological limitations like with a lot of other things. Um, so for me then, the question with, with things like VR, I, I've been in this space even, you know, when we saw re clunky research prototypes that look like, you know, a 1930s movie was wires sticking out of your brain. Um, and for me, the question is, how do we use it and what, what we find as a use, right? Um, I've been exploring the use of virtual reality for older adults, for, for meaningful social connections, um, for entertaining things that they found useful. Um, it's obviously a very interesting kind of platform for, for a lot of other things. I don't, my take is I, I never get excited about a product launch <laughs> uh, because it's just, it's a lot of it is just hype. And I'm not saying this particular one is, is hype or not. Um, it is it is a nice product. Um, is it better than the previous iteration of what we have on the market? In in several ways, is it out of reach for most people? Also, yes. Um, like like everything is, will it radically transform everything? Probably not. Um, nothing radically transforms anything. It's very rarely that we see that, or, or at least not on the spot. Um, right. So I'm, I'm, I'm I'm excited about it, but in the sense of yeah, this is this is getting better. <laughs> so. Right. I, I kind of think about it, and perhaps this is not a reasonable comparison, but comparing what is happening now to maybe the iPhone launch in 2007 didn't change the world overnight. No. But in the next decade, <laughs> and granted, it's not it's 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 the hardware platform that enables the building on top of it. So yeah. the social change is largely driven not by the iPhone, but by the Instagrams, the Facebooks, the social media companies that have built on top of the platform. And they're now in your pocket. They're now everywhere you go. Very curious to see how this shakes out. I don't think people are really going to be receptive to walking around their world with a pair of ski goggles, as you put it, on their face. Um, but I, who knows? I, I don't know. Um, and the point that you made that I think I want to come back to, which is I've always been very bullish on this technology. I think the VR, AR world is, there's so much richness there to, to, to tap into. And perhaps we can maybe touch on a few of those use cases. But at the end of the day, what problem are you solving? And you, any answer that I've heard is a bit of a stretch. Uh, I think the only real avenue that I see genuine value in is education. If you can augment the world, then you can all of a sudden teach yourself how to play piano just by seeing which keys light up for you to hit next. Great application. Very, very challenging to do because you need to do hand tracking and tracking of the keyboard, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I suppose who who stands to, to benefit the most from this technology? You've mentioned seniors or older adults who perhaps are a little bit more isolated. Uh, I had a conversation with James Dankert a few weeks back, and he had mentioned that Loneliness is something that increases uh, as you kind of hit the retirement age. So I would expect screen time and stuff like this to be a bit of a, a barbell. People who are young are 
obviously on TikTok and whatever all day. And the people who are older, uh, which I would lump my parents into, might be trying to scratch the social connection, the social itch with a Facebook or a news outlet online, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, there's, there's an interesting kind of thought here about the fact that when you say who who will benefit the most, it's it's almost kind of who could versus who should, right? So, um, and I don't want to be skeptical here. And I would say, yes, all rebels should benefit from this. Would they? It depends on how, if we get this right or not, um, and how we pitch it and how we present it and how we introduce it and how we support them. And again, it's how we design it. It's nothing to do with the technology capabilities. It's everything around it. Um, and is it for them? Is it designed with them? And it's a big, that's a big question. And we don't see that much in industry. Um, are you tapping into this market properly by including them or just basically saying, hey, this is good for you, use it. Um, and you're going to get pushback like every other every other technology. Uh, we saw this with, you know, cell phones. <laughs> they came out with like, you know, iPhone and, and things like that with wearable computing, like, you know, all the fitness trackers. Um, so it's it's a very complex equation because also the cost, right? And as you mentioned, like, you know, what, what problem are you solving? Sometimes you don't have to solve a problem, right? You just have to bring something that, that does something new, right? That affords, it's not like really solving a problem. You know, gaming, you know, the, you know what problem does it solve? No problem, right? It's just fun. Um, it's a problem in a way. It's, you know, giving people something to do that's exciting. Um, so, so for me, those are... Those are things that we need to sort out uh, before we can even say, "Hey, this is good for for that demographic." I, but I, I, I hear what you're saying with education, and I mentioned seeing seeing this technology for many, many, many years. And yes, this was education was the number like training. I don't call it just education because it was also also kind of industry training. I've seen demos from many companies like you know 15 years ago on using you know early generation augmented reality where. Hey, here's an engine that you need to repair and you're far out somewhere and you have an expert in this other place and the expert is going to guide you uh, saying, hey, that, that straight bar there is the one and just highlight it from a distance. And I've seen all of this working, uh, medical training, um, operating room procedures, all of that are, are great um, space. Like, uh, in US, like safety, safety training is like little game. One of the first games I played in VR. It's like warehouse, <laughs> you know. You get this like sort of quiz-like, but it's engaging. Like you go and pick up this box that's off the shelf. Well, no, you shouldn't have because that's too high and it's too heavy. Um, and you know, have this you know jug of like chemicals. Where do you place it in the warehouse? And you know, don't place it there because it's gonna tip over and you know put it over your head. Um, and, and this were around even when the graphics of this looked like really really bad. Um, but we had them right. So that's probably one one thing that we're gonna see a lot. Um, it also we're gonna see it in the space of productivity. If I am to kind of pick pick something, right? Um, and there's already applications and. We've been using, without endorsing particular products, we've been using, for example, Spatial. So Spatial IO, it's a, it's a very interesting startup that's been working in this space of augmented reality. And they've been working on supporting productivity in the in the workplace with, with, with virtual reality and augmented reality technology. And we're going to see it there, right? It's just easier to show someone, hey, look, I have this 3D model of things or even like a 3D graph of something. Um, consumer level... Who knows, right? Um, 
I think that's that's a matter also of value. So I don't want to speculate on that because I'm not I'm not an entrepreneur. Um, and and I don't want to say is this priced right. I mean, you have you have good devices that cost four hundred dollars, and you have a device that costs four thousand. Is that ten times better? You know, probably not. Um, but for me, that perspective is more like how how can we use it? And I think it's an early technology in, in the way of consumer reach. Um, it's not an early technology in terms of technology maturity. It's just it's getting better, but nothing that is coming even in the past years, nothing is radically new. It's just getting better. Um, so it's actually something I wanted to mention because uh, Bill Buxton was one of the design gurus in our in our HCI space. He's been he's been talking about this what he calls the long nose of innovation. Right? So 20 years, that's the that's the space, 20 years at least, right? From where the technology is like from research ready to commercially ready. Um, and, and he always says like, if you try to predict a technology that's gonna be great on the market 10 years from now, that means that technology should already be 10 years obsolete from a research perspective. Um, VR is kind of maybe there, right? So maybe, maybe we're getting there because it is a lot of, VR technology is more than 10 years obsolete right now. It's just getting better. Resolution is getting better. Computing power is increasing. Battery um, is getting better compared to the first generation, but nothing is fundamentally shifting. As the you can have better cameras that track without sort of clunky kind of move, it can track your movements a little bit better. So all of that is getting incrementally better. So for me now, the question is how do we design something that helps people do what they want to do? Right. Right. That's, I, that's the big question. Not not the technology itself. During the pandemic, I made a COVID purchase. I don't know if you can see it over my shoulder. I have a headset on my bookshelf. <laughs> and it's been on my bookshelf for quite a while because there's just something about it escaping from the real world that is... It has the potential to be really fun if you have a lot of friends who also have the same thing and are also in their their play environment with you know enough space and objects far enough away where they can fully interact in this virtual space. But if you do not have that, it can feel a little bit isolating, um, but incredibly immersive. When I first got it, there's like an intro thing where there's just this environment where there's lots of things happening, popping in, popping out audio noise sound it's it's quite immersive quite impressive you can look around and see things my my dad he's 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 quite old he's 73 this year and i strapped this thing onto his head and i said you got to see this this is this is nuts and he had just had his mind blown this is unbelievable but then the IO of the device, the input output, you have to interact with these little controllers. And I grew up with video with video games, so I'm quite dexterous and very comfortable with it. My folks are not. So yeah. that's, that's that's a big barrier to entry. My question then is what what about older adults, seniors, make them such prime candidates for HCI development? or further research? What are the characteristics, circumstances, dynamics, these things? And I know we've, we've touched on some of them, but maybe just to kind of refine that and be very poignant. What's well, an interesting space. And, and this is again, both like from a social perspective, but also from a technology perspective and interaction perspective is that it's, it's very hard to pin down what all rivals are. And for very good reasons, 
it's, you know, if you think about, you know, 30% of the population is over the age of retirement, that's a lot of people. And they're not the same. The only thing they have in common is the number, the age. Um, everyone is different. And you, know, you have this, this great diversity of people and everyone, everyone interacts with technology in a different way. Some people learn control. You mentioned the controller. So that's a great example. Some people can learn that easily. Some people have a harder time because they've never seen technology. Some people have a harder time because they've used technology all their life. And that's something that we never think, well, we think, some of us think, <laughs> it's not, not the most intuitive thing to think about. One of the challenges with all rallies and technology is actually they, they've been using technology, but they've been using it for a long time. And it's more or less the same technology. Um, and there's a there's a cycle of adoption, and it slows down as you age, um, and um, and it's a natural progress, and that means you get stuck with that. Um, there was a bit of a kind of funny moment here in Canada, in Ontario, where we're based, when when our provincial premier was revealed that he still uses an old BlackBerry, and he actually bought like secondhand a stack of Blackberries, um, and I know several people of, of around that age group that have Blackberries at home, right? So is, are they using technology? Yes, but they got used to a certain technology and, and as, you, as you get older, you're less willing to put up with transitioning um, to a new technology. Like I'm dreading, like I'm, you know, changing my laptop and it's just, it's on it's us last legs. I just want to deal with it. <laughs> um, and uh, so, so those are some of the interesting challenges, right? So those controls, you mentioned gaming, right? It was easy transition for you because it was designed like that. But we are not designing controllers to be fall out. And to be honest, like even Oculus and the products have hand tracking. I was like, oh, it's natural because you can use gestures. Well, yes, we can use gestures because people have been using gestures on cell phones. But are those gestures natural? No, not all of them are. You have to learn the gesture. So it's not much different. Um, then there's another layer that comes with age. Again, you, we don't want to reduce people to physiological, biological mechanisms. But, you know, the reality is that as we get older, some of our motor controls change. Um, not everyone um, at the same pace. Can you do those pinching things with your fingers with accurate precision? Not always when you get when you get old. Um, again, it's not necessarily depending on age, but it's more pronounced as people age. So there's this layer of accessibility um, for this technology. So that, that's not just specific to VR. Any technology would have the same thing. Um, the fact that that we need to think about how we include these people in the in the design, um, and there's a perception and there's a there's a value there. There's different models we use to um, help us think how we how certain demographics adopt a certain piece of technology. Um, and one of them is the perceived utility value. That's a, that's one component. We don't we don't often you you mentioned it in a way is like what problem does it solve. Um, that if you think about it in a broader sense, it's like what what does this what does this thing do for me? <laughs> um, is it fun? Sure. And and we've done a lot of presentations at retirement homes on on VR. Um, and I'm surprised sometimes because I hear you know questions from from people who have never tried. It's like, can I can I do fitness in this thing? Right? Because they want to move from Wii bowling to something else. Right? <laughs> um, and uh, you know. So there's a niche and there's a there's a there's a thing they want it they want to get, but um, not if we're designing the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I suppose what you mentioned there also really contributes to how difficult it is to design for elderly people, uh, is because 
as you as you age, your neuroplasticity also decreases. Your brain is literally less malleable to create new connections and learn new things. But the brain doesn't slow down, and it's a bit of a. It's just it's just that we get used to a certain things, and changing those things is the hard part. Okay. It's not that the brain is not capable of learning things. It's just that we prefer to stick with what we learn, right? There's, there is the issue of plasticity and, and things like that, but I think it's been often exaggerated, right? Um, right. It's almost like it says like, well, we're getting eight, we're getting old, and the brain slows down too. But that's that's not necessarily the case. We're not giving credit. Like most oral are super sharp, and it's not just like an auditive thing. The brain is actually the one that ages the least in our bodies, right? Compared to to everything else, but it also accumulates a lot. So it's often a matter of like we've been doing the same thing over and over and over again, and I and I, it's hard to change after you've done. When you're young, you can change it because you haven't had that long imprint on your brain, um, um, and it's easy to switch to a new thing. Um, or adapt to a new thing, especially if that new thing has been designed by people, you know, like you to help you transition from the previous thing to the next thing. But when that previous thing is just not much different than what you have and it's close to what you have, it's also easier. But if that, that thing was so far away from what you had, then it's harder to transition. One thing that you mentioned again before is that 30% of the population is above the age of 60. And this is a trend, and I'm not sure how many people are aware of this. This is a global trend. Um, Korea, for example, is a place that is suffering very, very greatly from this trend. I just want to read a few stats here. Um, in Korea, there will only be 5.5 grandchildren for every 100 grandparents, experiencing a population decline of 94% in the next century which is a, a roughly, they're at a reproduction rate of about 0.78, which is down from 0.81. These are like our numbers. So people, if they're maybe familiar or maybe a little bit of PTSD from the COVID pandemic, when R is over some threshold, you have acceleration. When it's under, you have deceleration. So if you want to have a stable population, you need about 2.1. They are at 0.78, and that's a decreasing number, which is... I don't know how to how to make this like as salient as possible. This is a big problem, and there are very few countries in the world who are actually above reproduction. So we are going to hit a cliff where technologies are going to need to be designed for older adults, seniors, elders, because we need to use this lever of technology to then take care of this older population, which I find interesting and concerning. But my question for you is, why, why has this not caught on yet? Do you expect this to be a trend that we see in the future is more adoption and design for older people? And why? Well, two reasons. And one is, is, is clear. We are not designing technology for these people. We're not. It's it's ridiculous. I've, I've done presentations on improving chatbots for banking use to banks and and the, the reaction was like, we're not interesting in, in older adults. Um, and I'm like, are you nuts? Like, this like people who sit on piles and piles of money. So it's like, yeah, but they are not invest. They just, you know, keep it. And it's like, well, it's your problem. You're not innovating. Um, it's like, we're interested in the young people and kind of hook them early into the into our accounts. It's like, we're young people. They're broke. <laughs> they're broke. They can't afford anything. We, we, we create a society. We're just like, we're screwing the young generation over. And it's like, 
not doesn't mean neglect them, obviously, but um, I think we've been going about this the wrong way for a long time. Um, so, uh, and just using the economic argument, but it's it's a moral argument. We're we're simply not thinking about older adults, and we're not designing anything for them because it's not cool. Um, there's a lot of examples, you know, a variety of social media platforms that, you know, at least one particular one that, that is the platform for older adults, but they don't want to admit it. <laughs> um, they don't want to admit it. It's, it's, it's almost ridiculous. Um, and, uh, it's, I think there's a, there's a social, there's almost like a stigma as a designer. We, we just finished a survey with designers. Um, do you design for all adults, and do you have are you do you have the resources to design for all adults? And the answer is no. Um, they don't know how to design for all adults. Um, they think it's the morally right thing to do, but that's about it. Um, so I think this is this is one of the problems. And I think in a way, almost kind of how you phrase this is like we see aging as a problem. Right? Um, we see aging as a problem that needs to be fixed, and often we blame sort of advancement in technology and other fields, like medicine, right? That keeps us longer, right? Um, you know, life expectancy has gone higher because of all these advancements that allow us to live longer. We're not dying at, you know, 15, 60 because of every little disease that kills us and uh, every little impairment. Um, so, but we almost kind of say it's a problem, right? Um, but I think that's a completely wrong way of looking at it. It's aging is not a problem, it's an opportunity. Um, but we're not seeing it that way. And it, it is, it, we should see it that way. Um, and I'm mentioning someone who's getting closer to that than, than the other end, but but it, it is an opportunity. It's design, design things for, for people. It doesn't, that doesn't require new things. The, the things we have right now, design them for, you know, for everyone, including older adults. Um, and we're not doing that. We're not, we're simply not doing that. Do you see this trend turning around? Sadly, no. I hope it will, but I don't see strong evidence. Um, but again, it may change because if you look in the research space and just focusing on HCI as a research space, 20 years ago, it was little on this. Now there's a lot. So maybe maybe some of it will start rolling into the sort of the, the industry. Yeah. I mean, if we're talking about opportunities in terms of market value, like we can clearly see that, yeah. okay, sure, like you can maybe make software solutions for middle-aged people, et cetera, et cetera. But the whole world is going to trend towards this older demographic. So it seems like the market is there. It, it's it's very striking. Um, yeah, we're not thinking about it the right way because because every time we reduce older adults to, to what defines them and there's the physiological aspects of aging. But if you ask me, you know, and I'm, I'm, you know, in a few years, I'm eligible to drop pension. I'm not going to retire. But, you know, what do we want? Well, how do you see your dream retirement, right? I'm, I don't care about everything else. I just, I just want to stay home and just play video games all day. Um, you know, that's my dream retirement. Um, but you know, 30 years ago, that was not. If you ask someone, it may not have been the same thing. Right? And it's changing, and we're not, we're still refusing to believe that it's changing. And and you know, aging now means technology. And I don't talk about like surveillance, which is good, you know, hard monitors and all of that important. It's not, but it's not enough. It's not the only thing. Perhaps this is a bit of a shoehorn kind of question uh, because I wanted to ask you more about larger implications, but we are coming up on a bit of a time limit. It seems like technology follows a pattern that over time it becomes smaller and more integrated. So as we talked about some of these technologies, some of these 
that even seem invisible, like voice technology, let's say, as these become better and better, more seamless, more integrated, do you consider any risks that this poses us? We've already seen screen time climb drastically. I, I believe that the average now is somewhere in the range of three hours and 44 minutes for an average American, which again, I'm assuming that that's a large barbell or dumbbell shape. A lot of the older folks are spending more time online trying to connect and get social um, validation there. Similarly, on on the younger Gen Z kind of side of things, uh, are there any risks that you see posing us? I think the risks, I think there are a lot of risks. Um, and I see at least two that come to mind that I've been tackling. One is the discrimination risk. And there's, there's a lot of things. And one is, is this exclusion, right? Where the risk is we're designing technologies that, that work for the designers and not for everyone else. And I think that's one of the risks and, and creating, you know, a two class society of digital, and I don't want to call the word experts because the fact that you are young and use technology doesn't mean you're an expert. You're just a heavy user. Um, but but we're going to see it around usage, um, and I think that it may have consequences on another on a few other things. Um, if your doctor intake forms are all uh, by you know some you know voice interface, and I'm, I'm picking on what's now, right? You have to you have an Alexa and you you know sign in with Alexa you know or or something like that. But who knows what's going to be in 20 years is some sort of a, you know, contraption that's going to fly around you like a mini drone, just kind of speculate um, that's going to try to take you to the doctor and everyone's going to freak out, except people who have designed that they think that's the best idea ever. So I think that's one of the problems. I think the other problem is that the computing power needed to handle all of this is, is huge. And that leads to concentration of resources into a very few places that can afford to do that, like large companies, meaning this sitting on very, very, very large data and they can get it wrong in, in both, again, bias, discrimination. We've seen that a lot with AI technology that are racist, that are exclusionary uh, because we don't think about how to how to use them properly, but also in terms of way too much personal information that's concentrated into very, very few places. Not necessarily an alarmist on this, but it is a concern that I would have. So the privacy issues. Um, and it's not like kind of that kind of, oh, someone's going to hack my account. Um, not that that's not a real thing. Um, but more to the point of like, how much of my own autonomy am I giving away? Um, and I think these are some concerns I would have with, uh, and the, more natural and the more ubiquitous the technology is, the less uh, maybe worried we are about this while the problem becomes bigger. Right? Um, yeah, there was just a survey done. Sorry, there was just a survey done uh, where they were interviewing, I believe, or, or they're surveying rather, young Americans. I don't remember the exact demographic, but it was something along the lines of 30% agreed and supported cameras in the home or surveillance in in the home and i believe this is like a safety kind of thing which to me just sounds that sounds a little bit wild i, I don't even like the idea of having a voice assistant in in the home if i'm going to be frank uh the phone is more than enough for me but um one more question just to slide in here last minute a buzzer beater if you will what is what is the end goal of hcis if, if, if you see this taken to the extreme and technology again just continues to be at smaller more integrated is the end goal a Neuralink kind of thing, a brain interface? Is it something that is just always prescient and around you? 
I don't think um, either. I think most people would say that the end goal is or should be making people's lives better by whatever technology we have available to us in a way that doesn't harm anything else. And I think a lot of people agree that at least that should be the goal. Um, so it's less techno focus as more it's a, you know, that's why human is in front of the HCI. Um, making it better for people, uh, whatever that means. Um, with whatever we have available and pushing the technology. Is that gonna be Neuralink? Maybe. Is it gonna be voice interfaces? Maybe. Is it gonna be some, you know, humanoid robot with a human flesh that's gonna, you know, help me with things? Maybe, who knows? It's lots of open opportunities um, to get excited about. But the end goal is making people's lives better. And that's how it should be. We're not always doing it. We're not always getting right, but that's how it should be. Awesome, Montanu, ladies and gentlemen. Cosman, if anyone would like to follow you and your work, where can they go? Where can they keep up with what you're churning out? I'm old fashioned website. <laughs> <laughs> and where whereabouts is that? I, is it just safe enough to Google your name and they will find it? That's that should be. That's that's how I like it. No, no new platforms. Although I am I am supportive of innovation in this space. Wonderful. I'm old and I'd like to keep it conservative. It's what I've been doing for the past thirty years. <laughs> <laughs> Goswin, thank you so much for this. This is a real treat and I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Lots of good questions and, and really appreciate all your insights into the technology space and, uh, and, and pushing some hard questions. Mm-hmm.